Well, good morning, and welcome again uh, to Grace Church, to all of you that are here worshiping live with us, and to all of you who are tuning in from home, uh, welcome again to Grace Church. My name is Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here. Now, before we begin uh, looking into the word that God has for us this morning, uh, let me just quickly say it's been uh, coming up on three weeks uh, since uh, my family and I joined Grace Church, and on uh, behalf of our family, let me just say a word of give a word of thanks to all of you. Um, thank you so much for welcoming us so warmly into this uh, church family. And admittedly, you know, leaving one church family for another can be a difficult process. Um, but man, all of you have made it such an easy, uh, comfortable transition, and uh, in such a short period of time, we're so happy to say in so many ways we feel like uh, we're at home. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Um, this Christmas season, I've been going through a mini-sermon series called uh, Songs of Christmas, where you've been looking at uh, the opening chapters in the book of Luke. And last week, Pastor Aaron gave a sermon uh, on the song of Mary that is called the Magnificat, and this week we'll be looking at the song of Zechariah that is called the Benedictus. And so having said that, let me read for you today's passage, which comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1. And let me read for you verses 67 to verse 80. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. Let us pray together before you go before God in His Word. Our Father, we thank You for gathering us in this space, either live or virtually this morning. And God, as we look to come before You in Your Word, we pray that You would give us open ears to listen, open hearts to receive Your Word. And God, I pray that You would be with me as I deliver your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. And so we ask for your spirit to come now and minister to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, as we go through the songs of Christmas, and if you were here uh, last week or tuning in, and as you're listening in now... If you're anything like me, you may be a little bit skeptical. You may be thinking, wait, so 
How is it that these people, when they have these extraordinary experiences in their life, how do they all of a sudden burst out into spontaneous song? Right? Is it because Luke, the gospel writer, is he somehow taking the events of what happened and he's giving us a musical rendition of what actually transpired? I don't think so. So how is it that these people spontaneously burst out into song? We get the answer in verse 67 of our passage this morning where it says, his father, Zechariah, what? Was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and then he prophesies in song. Now the first thing that we learn here is that one of the hallmarks of a heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit is a heart that is filled with song. Why? Because songs and hymns have the power to convey realities that are too profound for mere words. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he's encouraging and addressing the Ephesian churches in the book of Ephesians, says in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. See, friends, that's why it's so important for us when we gather together that we sing together. It's, we're not just engaging our uh, intellect with the lyrics that we sing. We're not just engaging our emotions with the melody that we sing these songs to. No, when we sing songs of praise and hymns of worship unto God, we are actually engaging our whole person in a way that is more profound than just our intellect and emotions. And we're bringing our whole person before God in songs. When we come together to sing, we are doing something that is far more profound than we realize. So again, a word of thanks to Ilya and for the worship band for leading us into song every single Sunday. And this song in particular that we're about to take a look this morning, this song tells us what it means to wait, to wait on God. And it's a timely word for us this morning because all of us are in a season of waiting, aren't we? Right? The pandemic has much of the world in a holding pattern. But even apart from the pandemic, there may be those of you that are waiting on God and waiting for children and are asking, is this ever going to happen? Some of you may be waiting on God, praying desperately for your family and friends, for them to walk away from destructive habits that they may have, and you may be asking, when are they ever going to destroy themselves? You are asking God, when? And this passage has a word for us. It teaches us how to wait on the Lord. So that our period of waiting is not just dead time. In between the times when exciting things happen, where we go from one to the other. But it can be a time of meaning and purpose as we wait on the Lord. And so what I'd like to do is go through this passage And see how we can wait on the Lord faithfully. So that we're not just surviving through the hard times, but we thrive. 
And so, the first thing that we learn from this passage is in order for us to wait faithfully on the Lord, first, we need to be honest about the hardships of the present moment. We need to be honest about the hardships of the present moment. Now, for this point, uh, I'd like for us to look at verses 78, the second part of 78 to 79. And as I read for you, we love our ESV translation. We're never going to deviate from that. Uh, it's a good translation. But here, uh, the King James Version just uh, is a wonderful way of putting it. So let me read for you in the King James Version, where it says, The day spring from on high have visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The day spring has visited us. It's this imagery of the day, the sunrise springing forth, shining into darkness, guiding our feet into the way of peace. And it's this wonderful and beautiful imagery. And we're going to talk about what this, mean in, in, what this means in a moment. But first, we have to ask the question. And it's a question that rarely gets asked when we look at passages like this. And the question is, why does the day spring need to come in the first place? Why? It's because this world, as it is presently constructed, is shrouded in darkness and is under the shadow of death. It's into this world that day spring is coming forth. And it is the backdrop of this entire song. Let me walk through this for you to give you a taste of the, kind, uh, the context uh, for this passage. Because if you look at this passage from the beginning, we see that God's people, if you look at verse uh, 68, we see that God's people are in need of redemption. The very next verse, we find that God's people are in need of saving. Look at verse 71. We see that God's people are hated by their enemies. We see that in verse 72, that God's people are in need of mercy. Down 74. We see that God's people are fearful people. And lastly, verse 77 we see that God's people are a people that are in need of forgiveness of their sins. See, what we find in this song, as beautiful as it is, is that this song is sung through the heart of a realist and not a naive sentimentalist. See, Zechariah, he is singing the song while sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. It is while sitting in that space that he is singing about the day spring that is to come. It is a song that is sung not just of joyful hope, but one of yearning and anticipation. And during this Christmas season, leading up to Christmas, it is so important for us to sit in the space of darkness in the shadow of death, and be honest about that. Why? Because just as, if, if you've read Lord of the Rings before, just as you will never appreciate the heroics of Frodo and his company without understanding the horrors of Mordor, or if you want a more modern analogy, just as we can never understand the heroics of Avengers, this team of superheroes that come together 
We can never appreciate their heroics without understanding the terrors brought forth by Thanos. We can never appreciate the day spring that is Jesus Christ being born on Christmas Day without understanding the darkness and the shadow of death that is the tragedy of the human condition. And so having said that, let me ask you, does it feel odd to be celebrating Christmas during a pandemic? Right? There are travel restrictions. There are devastation all around us. Many of us, as we pray together with Mary that are experiencing loss, empty chairs at the table, having to celebrate Christmas alone with our families, zooming in with our loved ones does not feel the same. Does it feel odd to be celebrating Christmas during a pandemic? Because it shouldn't. Why? Because this passage reminds us that Jesus was born into darkness and he was born in a stable. So any of you, are any of you experiencing loss during this time? Are any of you struggling in your marriage? Does it feel like your life is slipping through your fingers trying to manage your children's education, trying to keep a tidy home, and trying to get work done all at the same time? Are you experiencing financial devastation because of the pandemic? Are you wondering how you're going to make ends meet? If that is what you're experiencing this Christmas season, let me tell you that you are closer to the Christmas spirit than those of us who are just going about our merry way naively, blind to the terrors of this life. Fleming Rutledge, uh, who's a writer and a preacher, says that Christmas season teaches us how to wait. And she says it shows us how to be empty, living in anticipation of promise to be fulfilled, with emphasis on the word anticipation. So let me ask you, what are you waiting for this Christmas season? What area of life are you waiting for God to come through? Because it is in that waiting, it is in that anticipation of a promise to be fulfilled that the day spring will come forth. See, for many of us, when we are struggling, when we are suffering, for most of us, and especially in a region like this in northern New Jersey, many of you are high achieving. For many of us, our first instinct when we come across problems in our life is to fix it. When we come across struggling and suffering, our first instinct is to try and fix it. And too often, we try and ignore the present condition, and all we try to do is kind of look to the future and where we're going to get better. We're going to find ways to fix it. And so what we say, okay, we're, there's a problem in our life. Maybe uh, we need a lifestyle change. Maybe better performance is what is going to fix my problem. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to buckle down, and I'm going to shape up, and I'm going to be a better me tomorrow than I am today. Then maybe my life will turn around. But you know, there's a religious version of that as well. Or maybe I'm experiencing this problem in my life because I'm not a good enough Christian. 
And so the way in which I'm going to fix it is by becoming a better Christian. I'm going to pray harder. I'm going to read the Bible more. Which, by the way, is no different than the name it and claim it prosperity gospel. It's just a different version of that where we say, no, if we read the Bible more, if we pray harder, then that's what is going to fix my problem. And friends, there's nothing wrong with wanting to improve yourself. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But ultimately, if that becomes the means through which you look to fix yourself, then chances are you will fail. And once you do, you're worse off than before. But God forbid, even more dangerously perhaps, you succeed in that. And you do become better and your life improves. Then you're in a more precarious situation because that is the point in which you begin to say to yourself, I don't need Christmas. Why? Because I don't need Jesus in my life. Because I can fix myself. You know, once I heard uh, <clears throat> from someone, Jesus has many admirers in the church, many consulting clients in the church, but not too many lovers in the church. And that's something that I have to check myself on every day. Am I just admiring Jesus or do I love him? But do you realize it's not until you and I are willing to be honest with ourselves, to come before God with empty hands to say, you know what, I am broken. I need fixing. But there is nothing I can do to fix myself. It is not until that moment of honesty where you're willing to go before God just as you are, and say, will you fix me? And until you are willing to wait upon God's promises, it is not until then that you will begin to understand the gospel, not just as something that is abstract and general, but specific and personal. See, it is when we are willing to be honest about the hardships of the present that God's love will become real in your life. And that's when the door of opportunity opens for the day spring to come forth upon your life. To wait faithfully upon the Lord means to be honest about the present condition. But you know, at this point, some of you may be saying, you know what, I got enough problems in my life that I am in no condition to ignore it. Trust me, I am sitting in darkness. I am waiting. And this is why we need the second point, because to wait upon the Lord faithfully, first, you need to be honest about the hardships of the present, but secondly, we need to be hopeful about the certainty of a brighter future. We need to be honest about where we are now, but we also need to be hopeful about the future. And for this passage, I want us to look at verses 71 to 79, that middle part, chunk of the passage there. Now, if you were to look at this part as a whole, <clears throat> Zechariah is prophesying about a salvation that is to come. 
And a commentator for the book of Luke named Daryl Bach looked at this passage and says, it is talking about salvation, but he breaks this uh, little pericope up into two parts and says, there are two parts that talk about two aspects of salvation. And he looks at the first part from verses uh, 71 to 75, and he calls it a political dimension of salvation. And he looks at the second part in verses 77 to 79, and says that is a spiritual dimension to salvation. Now, I don't know if that is the most helpful way of designating those two dimensions, but nevertheless, let's walk through both of them together to see uh, what it says. Now, the first, the political dimension of salvation, you get it from uh, verse 71 to 75. Let me just read that for you real quick. It says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now the kind of salvation that is being talked about here is the key word that is sandwiched, right? That sandwiches this, uh, uh, that comes at the beginning at the end, right? He's talking about enemies, Deliverance from our enemies. Now the question is, who are these enemies that Zechariah is referring to? What is this political entity that is against him that he needs to be delivered from? Well, it is clear that in Zechariah's day, the enemies of the people of God in a lot of ways was Rome. And so we can start there. So he may be thinking about Rome. But if you look at the passage, he's clearly drawing language from the whole of Old Testament because he talks about Father Abraham and the promise that was given to our fathers. So it's clear that he has the whole Old Testament in mind. I was talking about here. What the commentator would say is he actually has in mind all of the systemic oppression that God's people experience throughout history. He's looking as God's enemies, all of those institutions, structures, systems that are in place that unjustly oppress God's people. And we see that in all of Israel's history, right? The people of God constantly lived with angst, anxiety, and grief because they had enemies all throughout their history as we do now. And they lived with a sense of yearning for someone to come, the Messiah to come to deliver them. You know, Koreans uh, have a word in the Korean language that is very difficult to describe and explain. It's the word Han. And that word uh, is, if I may try, it's a combination of a deep sorrow, resentment, uh, grief, regret, and anger. It's a combination of all of those things that is internalized and shared by the Korean people. And this sense of Han permeates all of our culture, from poetry to music, television shows, movies, and comedy, and everything, all of the above. <laughs> and it's not because Koreans are inherently depressed people. But why? It's because throughout Korea's history, we often found ourselves under oppression and occupation from more powerful forces that surrounded 
our country. Much like the people of Old Testament history. And the Korean people even found our country divided into north and south, just as Israel had. And so there is that sense of Han that a lot of Koreans carry with us. And I imagine that's what the people of God must have felt as well. But into that grief, into that sorrow and anxiety, the promise comes in that says, do you see these powers and institutions that are causing so much devastation in your world? They seem like impossible forces that will never go away. Right, just as Israelites were puny compared to the powers at the time, it may feel like in the present moment that these unjust forces that are against you are far more formidable than the forces that are for you. But into this present condition, we are being told that the day is coming when the king will come, riding on his victory horse, when will wipe every tear from every eye and will right every wrong, that this is a king who will bring justice to bear on all of creation. And the promise is that God's people, you, will be vindicated once and for all and for all eternity. And that is the promise that we are being given here. Now, what will that kind of promise produce in your life? You know, growing up uh, in middle school, uh, in my school, there were lots of bullies. And so lots of people getting picked on. Uh, But for myself, you know, I'm not a big guy, and I wasn't particularly big back then either. But I happened to be friends with the one kid that was bigger than all the bullies. You know, you go through puberty, and some kids just have growth spurts earlier than others, right? And so he was one of those kids. He was a giant, and I happened to be his best friend. And so he would never bully me. And so I had no fear. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I was insufferable. I would run my mouth all day, no fear, And I would almost enjoy the angry look on the bullies' faces because I would not show them an ounce of respect. And I love that. Because these bullies couldn't do anything because of the guy that was standing behind me. I was fearless. Church, do we have that kind of fearlessness about us? as we go about our day, as we face the injustices of the world? Do we have the kind of courage and confidence of Martin Luther King Jr. who looked at the impossible enemy that is systemic racism and still defiantly said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice? Some of you, who are experiencing injustice and oppression and persecution at the time, some of you that are going through suffering may feel like that ark may feel impossibly long. But the promise of this song is that there is a king who will finally bring justice to bear upon his return. He is the king of kings who will defeat the enemy. He is the one who will cast Satan into the lake of fire, and he is the one who will execute judgment from his throne. To all systems and institutions that oppress 
and persecute the image bearers of God. There is a day in which every wrong will be made right. There is a political dimension to this salvation. But just as importantly, there's also a spiritual dimension to the salvation, and we find this from verses 78 to 79. Let me read this for you. And actually, excuse me, let me start from verse 76 here. And this is uh, Zechariah. He's looking at his newborn son, and he prophesies. And he says, a new child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. But specifically, let me park on verse 77. What was John the Baptist being called to do? It says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Now let me tell you, that is one of the most succinct descriptions of the gospel message in the entire Bible. This was John the Baptist's message, forgiveness of sins as we heard about from Joe's powerful testimony. John the Baptist, don't get me wrong, he was a fiery preacher. Some would even say he he was a fire and brimstone preacher. The axe is at the root, and he will chop down every tree that does not bear fruit. And nevertheless, he says, repent and be baptized, because there is forgiveness that is available for you. Now, here's what's interesting, though. There's this little phrase that comes before that that says, knowledge of salvation. That John the Baptist will give knowledge of salvation. Now, here's what's interesting. What is this knowledge? Because forgiveness of sins is talked about a ton in the Old Testament already. I did a little research on my own and found that there are over a dozen passages in the Old Testament specifically talking about the action of God forgiving people for their sins. Very specific. But if you were to include passages that talk about God's grace and His mercy and the possibility of forgiveness of sins, I mean, there are dozens and dozens more. So it's all over the Old Testament. This is not, forgiveness of sins is not a New Testament message. It's the whole Bible message. So what in the world is Zechariah talking about when he's talking about knowledge? What is new about the salvation that John the Baptist is talking about? See, here we need to remember that knowledge, the word knowledge in the Bible is used quite differently from the way we talk about the word knowledge. Because for us, when we talk about knowledge, we most often talk about it in terms of information. So when I impart knowledge to you, we often think of it as new information that we get into our heads. 
But in biblical literature, the word knowledge is used to talk about something a lot more profound. Because it's not just talking about new information. It's talking about a new experience. It's not just talking about head knowledge. It's talking about heart knowledge. So he's saying, there is a day that is coming when the forgiveness of your sins would not just be head knowledge, but it would be heart knowledge. That there is a day coming when you know not just your head and your heart, that you are indeed forgiven from your sins. Joe, I want to thank you so much, brother, for your testimony. (laughs) I'm trying not to get emotional, but it was so powerful because it reminded me just how often I forget that I am forgiven from my sins and how hard I need to work to remember. Maybe I'll get it tatted on my arm too. Because why? For so many of us, especially for those of us that are familiar with the message of Christianity, we may even have grown up in the church and have heard time and time again that we are forgiven of our sins when we place our trust in Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, there may be glimpses that we get of the reality of the forgiveness that we've received over time. But more often than not, if you and I are willing to be honest about where we are, we more often than not don't feel forgiven. And so we still live with the same kind of guilt, shame, and frustrations of falling back into old patterns of our sins time and time again, and we carry the weight of shame and guilt with us, not realizing that we are indeed forgiven of our sins. There's an old movie, really old now, I can't believe it, called Shawshank Redemption. And in that movie, there's a character named Red. He'd been in prison for decades, for 40 years, all of, all of his adult life. And there's a part of the story where he's finally freed from prison. And you find him living in a halfway house, and he gets a job at a grocery store, bagging groceries. And you find that everything's new for him. And in one memorable scene, he finds himself needing to go to the bathroom. So he asks the manager, he asks, restroom break? And the manager responds just, he's exasperated. He said, you don't need to ask me every time you need to go to the bathroom. Just go. And it's followed by a narration that says, he says, 40 years I've been asking permission. 40 years He says, I've been asking permission to go to the bathroom. He says, it's a terrible thing to live in fear. Friends, for most of us, this is where we live. We live in a halfway house. We live in fear. We live in shame. We live in guilt. Not knowing deep down at the core of our being that we are forgiven and beloved children of the living God. 
And so we go about our days, right? When we're slighted, we feel the need to retaliate. We feel the need to be proven right. We feel the need to come out on top or we get down on ourselves. For far too many of us, we stake our identity on our paycheck. We stake our identity on what our bosses may think about us, what our spouses think about us. We stake our identity on our children. So we're constantly asking, how is my son or my daughter doing? Am I getting them involved in an enough programs? Are they excelling at school? Because if they don't, my identity will fall apart. We always have something to prove. We don't live as freed people, freed from the bondage of our sins, free to live knowing that our identity is secure, that we are forgiven, beloved children of the Most High God. But the promise here is telling us that there will come a day, as the prophet Isaiah said, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it tells us that that knowledge will be felt and experienced and known by the beloved children of God. And friends, let me say here, if you are a Christian, this is your future. Right? That is the hope that you and I have in the gospel, that there is a brighter future ahead of you. No matter what it is that you are going through right now, that the light of Christ will shine on you. That is a hope that you and I have. And so to faithfully wait on the Lord is to be hopeful about a brighter future. But we have one more point to go. Because this has massive implications for how we live in the present moment. And so lastly, to faithfully wait on the Lord is to live in light of the hope of the gospel now. That's the last point we'll look at. Now for this point, let me take you all the way back to the top of the passage. And let me read for you verses 68 to 69. Where it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now here's what's interesting. Zechariah is clearly talking about a salvation that is to come, right? So it's, he's looking forward to the future. But what's interesting here is that as he is talking about the salvation to come, the grammar indicating time is all jumbled up because even though he's looking forward to the messiah that is going to come and the salvation that he is going to bring he talks about it in the past tense do you see that he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us what is he doing here what zechariah is doing here is he is illustrating a theological principle for us that is often called the already, not yet aspect of salvation. Now let me try to explain this as simply as I can. What we find in this passage is Zechariah being filled with the Holy Spirit. What he realized in this prophetic ecstasy that he was experiencing what he realized was that with the birth of his son, who will be the forerunner for the Messiah, and with the conception of Jesus Christ, who is presently 
for Zechariah in Mary's womb. With the coming of this Jesus, in a sense, salvation for Zechariah had already come. It was a dawn of a new age that this, he, what he realized was that the salvation had indeed been inaugurated. Even though, again, mind you, Zechariah is not being naive here. He realizes that there is death and darkness all around him. And he realizes that the culmination of ultimately what the salvation is going to bring has yet to come. For him, nevertheless, there was a certainty to this hope that for Zechariah had massive implications for the present. It was as if he looked to the future coming of the king and he could taste it in the present moment, in the here and now. It changed everything about the way he looked at his life in the present moment. Now let me illustrate it this way. You may know that the vaccine for the coronavirus is out and are being given out. And it's first being given to frontline workers like doctors and nurses and experts tell us that it's going to be some time before the general population will be able to receive them. And uh, no matter how you may feel about the virus one way or the other, uh, you may realize that there are these videos of these frontline workers that are receiving the vaccine for the first time. And these videos are going viral. And I came across an article in the New York Times earlier this week that says, I can't stop watching coronavirus vaccine videos. And the article asked, like, why do we keep watching these videos? I can't stop. Why? And it says that for the people that are watching these videos, it's part vicariously experiencing the joy and the elation of those who are experiencing freedom from the virus in real time. Vicariously living through their joy. But it's also part being reminded that this indeed is the beginning and the end. That there's victory over this virus to be had. And by watching the video time and time again, they're, giving, they're being given hope and energy to face the day because they're saying there is an end coming. So I'm going to go about my day in joy and in confidence. And I think this phenomenon is signaling for us what it means to live in the here and now in light of the hope that is to come. Because when Zechariah thinks of the Messiah that is to be born, as he thinks of Christmas Day, he knows that God himself has already redeemed and visited us. That he's already raised up a horn of salvation for his people and he's filled with joy and peace in the present moment. Again, he can taste it. And friends, that's what Christmas is all about. Because Christmas tells us that there is a God who came. The strong man, as he depicts himself in Luke 11. He is a strong man who came to take the power away from the enemy. And he did that, remember in Luke 4? Right, when he stood forth at the temple and he recited the words of uh, the prophet Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind to set, liberty, set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he recites that prophecy of what is to come. And then what does he say? Mind you, this is at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus had hardly done anything. But what does he say right after that prophecy? He says, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Just at his coming, Jesus himself knew that he was bringing something new to this world. He was bringing God's justice and his mercy and his forgiveness in a way that has not been experienced before. He brought the salvation to us. But here's another thing. Christmas also tells us of a Messiah who came to deal with our sins. Why? Because Christmas also points us to Good Friday, doesn't it? Where Jesus Christ, the light of life, was not only born into darkness, but had his light snuffed out by the cosmic darkness that covered over the land for six hours. Remember that? But not only that, he was cast into the shadow of death on our behalf. Here is a God, the light of life, hung on the cross with every strand of hope pulled away from him, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? So that you and I can now be certain that this is a God who will never forsake us and will leave us that this God will indeed be true to his promises, that he will bring justice to bear, that he will deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and that he will make known to us our true identity as forgiven, beloved sons, sons and daughters of the God of the universe. How does that change your life now? Here's an illustration that I once heard that was so helpful in me thinking about this. If you would imagine two people given the same task of cleaning a dirty, filthy bathroom for the next 10 years, every single day of their life, you promise, same bathroom, same task. But you tell one person that at the end of those 10 years, you'll get $50,000 as reward. You tell the other person, you'll get $50 million at the end of those 10 years as reward. You think they'll have the same experience cleaning the, to- cleaning the toilets and the dirty bathroom? Absolutely not. You can imagine, one person will be miserable, getting nothing out of it. But the other person, I bet you, and I'll be this way, $50 million coming at the end of it? Not a bad deal. I'll be cleaning the bathroom with a song in my heart. Why? Because I know my imagination will be filled to the brim of what that money is going to do for me. And that's going to put a song in my heart. And that was a song that Zechariah was singing from his heart. And I guarantee you, friends, if you make this hope your hope, it'll put a song in your heart. Grace Church, would you turn to him 
Would you look to Jesus, who was born into darkness to bring us light? He is the day spring that has dawned on us. He is the one who will bring us into the city of God where there is no need for sun because the light of life, Jesus Christ himself, will be our light. And will you live in this hope during this Christmas season? And will you, out of this hope, now serve God, share this knowledge of salvation just as John the Baptist had with others around you without fear? Because, friends, no matter what we may hear about Christmas season from the media, from popular culture, from advertisement, this is the message of Christmas that our neighbors, that this world needs to hear desperately. And I pray for all of us that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we will move out into this world with this message of Christmas. So by God's grace, let it be so. Let us pray. Our Father, we um, come before you this Christmas season and we want to be honest about our present condition. The world has been turned upside down in so many ways. There's so much loss. There's so much devastation that is all around us. But God, we come before you empty-handed. We ask that you would fix us. We ask that you would give us the hope that we have in the gospel. May we live in that hope. May we live out of that hope. And may we now move out into the world. Lord God, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And will you do that marvelous work through your forgiven and beloved children as we look to go on mission together as a church. Thank you. And prepare all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.